A reading from the book of John. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just a little bit more about myself. I am a native of Fairfax. I grew up in Fairfax, Annandale, and graduated from W.T. Woodson High School way too many years ago. <laughs> when Johnny asked me to do this sermon tonight, one of my first thoughts was, what a great service to do your first sermon for a group of people, because I get to tell you to repent, you miserable sinners. And it's not a message that's guaranteed to earn you lots of new friends very quickly. But yet, this is what Ash Wednesday is all about. It's about the reality of our relationship with God Almighty and our fallen nature. That's what Ash Wednesday is meant to remind us. I was reminded of a situation that I had many, many years ago when I was serving in a parish after church one Sunday, I've forgotten what we had been talking about, a woman came to me, a mother who was very distressed, and she said, my son has just been sentenced for an umpteen number of years, and he's in prison. But I know deep down inside, he's really a good person. And I remember asking her, well, what was he convicted of? And her response was, premeditated first-degree murder. And my response was, that's not a good person. That's someone who has surrendered to the sin nature that we all carry. So Ash Wednesday is one of the most sober observances of the church year because it confronts us with a question. That question is, who is first in my life? Who calls the shots? Who makes the decisions? And as Jesus points out in our passage from John tonight, how we answer that question can have eternal consequences. We are in John chapter 12 tonight as we have continued in John's gospel these last few weeks. 
We're up to John chapter 12. And as we heard last Sunday, John chapter 12, the first few verses, records a dinner party in Bethany hosted by Mary, Martha, and Lazarus for Jesus and his disciples as they are on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. This is the, feet, the uh, dinner party where Mary anoints Jesus' feet with the pure nard, as Johnny shared with us last Sunday. And there's a time of profound expectancy amongst the disciples and amongst those at the party because it moves on. And what we have recorded in the next section of John chapter 12 is Palm Sunday and Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we are told that because of the resurrection of Lazarus, throngs who have come to the festival come out of the city to meet Jesus as he's riding in on a donkey. Thunderous adulation. Thunderous adulation from a multitude of people. It's no wonder Pontius Pilate was in the city. He normally spent his time in Caesarea, which is up on the Mediterranean coast, a good 30, 40, 50 miles away. He came into the city because he knew Jesus was coming and there could be a riot. And he didn't want things to get out of hand. So he's there in the city. And we are also told that the priests and the Sanhedrin and the leaders of the people were all plotting to get Jesus arrested and to murder Lazarus because his being alive is testifying to the reality and nature of who and what Jesus is. So that's all here in John chapter 12. And then we come to our passage this evening. It's at some point after Palm Sunday. John isn't always the best at giving us time markers uh, as we go through his gospel. He's got other things on his mind that he wants to communicate. So we're at some point after Palm Sunday. Might be Monday, might be Tuesday. And we are told that among the crowds of people who had come to the festival were a bunch of Greeks. Now these would have been non-Jews, but this is all we're told. But they have come to the festival, and indeed there are many traditions of non-Jewish people coming to these big Jewish festivals because they're attracted to and drawn to the worship of one God in contrast to most of the rest of the world at that time. And they come to Philip with a question. We want to see Jesus. Can you arrange a meeting for us? We really want to see Jesus. Philip goes and gets Andrew. Andrew and Philip go and tell Jesus. These guys would like to have a chance to talk to you. And what does Jesus do? It's recorded for you there in the passage. He doesn't answer their question. He makes no appointment. He responds with, truly, truly, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's his answer to the question from the Greek people. His hour has come. Now we've heard this somewhere before, haven't we? I remember a few weeks ago, way back in John chapter 2, the wedding in Cana of Galilee. They run out of wine. Jesus' mother comes and gets him and says they've run out of wine. And what does he say to her? Woman, why do you involve me? My hour 
has not yet come. There are a couple of other spots in John's gospel where we hear something similar, something's happening in Jesus' life, people around him, talking to him, trying to arrest him, all kinds of different things. And John has this little refrain, it's repeated a few times, his hour had not yet come. But here we are in John chapter 12, we're only halfway through the gospel, and he is saying, my hour has come, it's now. And what is about to happen is everything that God the Father has planned since before the creation of the world. His hour has come. So what does this hour mean? What's he talking about? Remember, he's just ridden into Jerusalem, the ancient capital of Israel, to the riotous adulation of an enormous crowd. If he were going to grab political power for himself and begin a revolution to restore the ancient glory of Israel, which is what everybody expected the Messiah to do, Surely this was the moment to do it. All the opinion polls were in the high 90s. Okay? This is what everyone expected. This could be his hour to gain worldly power and pomp. But Jesus is not concerned with worldly power and pomp. He's not concerned with the things that the world says are important or pressing or urgent. He does have a kingdom to establish, but it's not of this world. Instead, as we read through our passage this evening, he is focused on what God the Father wants to accomplish for the life of the world. Jesus is dealing with issues far weightier than political, worldly power and might. Remember, the devil has already offered it to him back in the temptations. And he has refused the offer. He refuses to get sidetracked by the things the world says are important or that he should do. Jesus is putting God's plan and God's agenda first, even to the point of death. He knows what's going to come at the end of the week. We'll talk more about that when we get to Holy Week and talk about those events. So his hour has come, and it involves matters far more profound than running out of wine at a wedding, or grabbing power, or overthrowing the Roman Empire, much as people wanted that to happen, or gaining adulation for himself. His hour had come to save the world and to reconcile it to God. This is why he doesn't talk to the Greeks when they come with a question. Because they will soon see for themselves what he is all about. He must be about what he came to do. His hour has come. He does not love this life in this world to the point where he is willing to put aside God's life in the world to come. Indeed, he is willing to give up his life in this world in order to accomplish God's much bigger purpose of redemption and salvation. By his death and then his resurrection, millions of people, including you and me tonight, will find salvation and redemption. And thus, 
in line with the example he uses here, like a seed falling into the ground and then sprouting and bearing much fruit. That's what is about to happen. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says this, that Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame of dying on a cross because of the joy that was set before him on the other side of the resurrection. He saw through what was going to happen to him to what was yet to come. And he saw the glory that awaited him again in heaven after the resurrection. This is what Jesus is getting at in our passage tonight. Verses 24, 25. Truly, truly, he says, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And we see that in his life. Then he goes on, though, and he says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, truth be told, we often come up short of what he's getting at here. And I'll explain a little bit more in just a second. We let other things get in the way or crowd out God's work in our lives as he tries to transform us and lead us into God's kingdom. This is one of the reasons why we have Ash Wednesday, so that we can get clean again. We often, truth be told, love life in this world and its concerns and its troubles and its worries more than we love the Lord of eternal life. So here's the crux. Here's the crux. Who or what is first in my heart, in my mind, in my life? What am I spending my energies on or for? The ancient lie in the Garden of Eden is still active in the world today. You don't need God. You can be your own God. You can be first in your own life and live your life any way you think is best. You can make up your own truth. I don't know about you, but I see this lie still active in our culture around us even today. Jesus brings the truth, however. He brings the true reality that comes straight from God. God's creation doesn't work like that. If we place ourselves first and foremost, we will die. We already know this. We all die physically because we've all been infected to one degree or another with this original lie from Satan. Theologians call it original sin, and we're all infected with it. But Jesus tells us that if we hate our life in this world, if we put something else ahead of it, we can find eternal life. This means he's calling us to make a choice. Put myself first and find death, or humble myself and put God first and find life. That's what he's telling his disciples in John chapter 12. Now, you and I, all of us, we've been living with COVID-19 now for a couple of years. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty tired of COVID-19. I'm sure you are as well. But pandemics 
can sometimes serve a spiritual purpose. Did you know that? We are told in Revelation that there are a number of pandemics that come as a direct consequence of God's judgment on the earth. We are also told that after almost every single one of them, the people refused to repent and turn back to God. They made the wrong choice. Pandemics reminds us that we are mortal. A pandemic can be that reminder for us that life is temporary. We all know it to one degree or another, but if you're like me, you kind of shove that news off. That's something I'll deal with when I'm 95 or 100, but not right now. But let me share with you something. I was a priest in Fairhope, Alabama. I know there's some folks who know where Fairhope, Alabama is for most of the 90s. Fairhope, Alabama, for most of the 90s, was commonly rated as the second best place in the United States to retire. And a lot of people decided second best is good enough for me. And they came there and died. We averaged a funeral a month for the eight years that I was served down there. The youngest person I buried was a pre-born baby who was killed in a horrific car accident. The oldest person I buried was well into their 90s. I buried several teenagers, buried a whole lot of other people. And you could not ignore the fact that we are all mortal. And it didn't matter what your age was. It didn't matter what your circumstances were. A couple of them were accidents. They weren't planning to die that day. But yet they did. And suddenly they're standing before the Lord. So a pandemic can help us remember that we need to keep clean before God. We need to maintain that relationship. We need to be people who keep short accounts. Wars often serve the same purpose. There's a war going on right now. Threats have been made. We're going to launch our missiles. Well, guess where those missiles are aimed, people? Right here. Okay. So I encourage you to use this Ash Wednesday service to make sure your soul is right with the Lord. Because we don't know. There's no guarantees. Now, the thing to remember is that God wants us to love Him, to respond to His goodness towards us in love. And one of the things to remember that as we go through this service, as we receive the imposition of ashes in a few minutes, we are being reminded of that need that we have to get right and keep right with Almighty God. We are also reminded of the need to follow Jesus' example. In the great crisis of his mortal life, he kept his mind, his focus, and his agenda on God's plan. All the things that were uh, weighing in on him, all the things culture was saying, all the things society was saying, all the things religion was saying that he should do instead of what he was doing, he ignored. So this is what Jesus is telling his disciples when he says, he who hates his life will keep it for eternal life. This is what he's saying. He's saying, put God first, keep God first, 
maintain God first in this life and then in the life of the world to come, they will have eternal life. And this is why we have Ash Wednesday every year in the season of Lent. To pause in our busy lives for a brief season every year and do the spiritual housekeeping that we all need to do. What are the weeds that have grown up in my heart and in my life? Where have I turned away from following the Lord for whatever reason? What is keeping me from experiencing His life in my life? Where are the blockages? What am I putting ahead of Him for whatever reason or with whatever excuse? Where are you loving your life more in this world than in your life in the world to come? Now, as I mentioned, we'll receive the imposition of ashes in just a moment. As we do, the clergy will say over you as they make the sign of the cross on your forehead, remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. Our mortal bodies will die. But fortunately, the service continues beyond receiving of ashes. We'll follow that with the prayers of penitence. This is our time to come clean with the Lord, lay before Him the pride, hypocrisy, immorality, idolatry, sin, and all the other ways we have failed to love Him first and foremost in our lives. The litany of penitence is a comprehensive list of many of the ways we can and do sin against God. But the service doesn't end there. After the litany of penitence, in a supreme demonstration of God's grace, Johnny will stand up and offer us absolution. The announcement that God has put away our sins and washed them away and forgiven us. This is what Ash Wednesday does for us. It brings into immediate focus all the ways we have failed God and then brings into immediate focus the amazing grace of God in Jesus Christ to forgive us and cleanse us of our sins and our disobedience. Then we will have the rest of the season of Lent to tend to the gardens of our lives, weeding out the things that we know really shouldn't be there, setting them aside, repenting of them, coming back to the Lord. So I encourage you to confess to the Lord, anything that is keeping you from fully loving Him. And then, during this season of Lent, ask the Lord to show you the other places in your life, the other weeds, the other thorns, whatever it is that needs to be ripped out and thrown away, so that you can continue to put Him first at all times and in all places. And you know what? If you ask Him to do that, He will. It's one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. And he will do that not because he's mean, not because he's an ogre, not because he's out to squash you like a bug, but because he loves us and he wants us to be free of everything that mars our souls and prevents us from fully enjoying him. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you hate nothing you have made. We thank you for making each one of us. I pray that you would send forth your Holy Spirit upon us now, that as we make our confession, 
we may truly turn from the things we confess and turn instead to you. Change our hearts that we, we may truly long for and love you with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Cleanse us from our sins and empower us to stand for you no matter what may come. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.